My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Instead of doing uh, one listener question at the end of the interview today, I'm going to actually do kind of a rapid fire, a bunch of shorter answers to questions that revolve around sort of politics and faith, because that is fitting with today's uh, topic. So this is one of those episodes that is going to be airing on both the You Have Permission feed and the Depolarize feed, my semi-defunct podcast, uh, More About Politics. Uh, and psychology, and, and how they relate in religion. Um, but my guest today is Peter Weiner. He is vice president and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a conservative think tank. And he contributes to the New York Times, and he is a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Uh, and he's one of these never-Trump conservatives, or principled conservatives, as they're sometimes called. Basically, bastions of thought on the right that once Trump came along, they were like, uh, no, not this guy. This is not the kind of thing that we believe in. And for reasons that I'll get into with Pete, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to and reading people in that group um, in this time of our nation's, like this weird time for our nation, basically. But the reason I asked him specifically to be on this episode is that I listened to him talk with John Ward on his fantastic show, The Long Game, about how he was surprised at sort of the lack of efficacy of the evangelical faith that he was raised with or that he converted into, basically, and that it didn't keep more people from effectively supporting Trump, not necessarily voting for Trump, but more the continued almost tribal support of Trump. And both he and I think there's a big difference uh, between those two things. And I, But really, most of this happens in the conversation, so I guess I'll just get into it with him. Um, and at the end, I, I just want to tease this, though. The last 20 or 30 minutes, we're mostly talking about his vision of politics as a Christian in America. And it really contrasts with what is becoming a more popular view, which is a more of an Anabaptist, kind of uninvolved, don't join the military. Maybe you don't really need to vote. Um, Christ is sort of doing something separate from the empires of politics and all that. And I wanted to give Pete a chance to sort of give an alternate uh, expression, an, an engaged expression, um, but still rooted in his faith. I don't agree with everything that Pete says or believes. Uh, I find myself on the left. He's on the right. Uh, but it was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Pete, thank you so much for being here. I, I kind of want to start just by locating myself and your work in the moment, I lean left. I was adamantly anti-Trump. I went to Nevada to canvas for Hillary because it was the closest swing state to Washington. And I started a politics podcast around the time of uh, the election um, 
I'm deeply concerned about polarization uh, and intellectual humility. And one thing that I have loved in the Trump era, so one of the probably the only thing I've loved politics wise, is being able to listen to and read sort of the never Trump conservatives, for lack of a better term. Uh, we might call you guys principled conservatives. That might be a better term these days. In the wake of of sort of Trump and, and the Trump takeover of Republicanism, yourself, David Brooks, Michael Gerson, you know, David Frum, Andrew Sullivan, uh, Yuval Levin. So thank you for being one of those prominent voices. I think a lot of us feel more sane because of your work. And even though I think you and I would probably have quite a few sort of policy disagreements, it's been great. In fact, my favorite thing is when like Ezra Klein interviews a principled conservative and we can kind of see where the lines are. And those are like my favorite politics interviews to listen to. Um, And your interview with John Ward on the Long Game podcast, I just loved. And that was kind of the impetus for having you here. I just wanted to kind of get that out there so people sort of know where I'm at and and why I wanted to have you here and and really to thank you for that work. Well, that's kind of you to say thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be on uh, with you. I'm a big fan of uh, of John Ward's, and um, a lot of the people that you mentioned are uh, are friends of mine, uh, Yuval and David and Mike. And it's been a strange time because um, I've uh, been uh, up until now a lifelong Republican. My first vote that I cast was in 1980 for Ronald Reagan when I was a young guy in college. And I've worked in three Republican administrations, the George W. Bush White House. Uh, so that's has been up until the uh, the Trump era my my political home, but uh, and I've left it, but but left it with uh, without much question that for me it was the uh, the right thing to do, and and I think the people who have known me best uh, and uh, longest in my life, probably almost to a person, uh, would say they're not surprised by by where I am at this uh, this moment. Well, I would take that as a compliment if I were you, um, given what this moment looks like in the wider country. I'd like to start with your earlier years in politics. So uh, Mm -hmm. you did work in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. I kind of want to, I want to talk about faith. So Mm -hmm. those years, how you saw it then, what role did faith play in sort of conservative Christians in politics, you know, either in how you guys did your jobs or how you and others framed your work in your own minds? I, just, I want to get kind of a baseline, basically. Yeah, it's a good question. I should say just as a, maybe as a backdrop, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. So I, I came to faith kind of at the end of high school was the beginning of my journey. And it was a, it was a very, uh, I guess, intellectually driven journey. It turned out my sister, uh, oldest sister, is five years older than I am. And Patty came home during this summer when I began my exploration of faith. And so I would just pepper her with questions. I remember writing on my dad's work pad all of these uh, questions about, about faith. So that, that began my, my, uh, my journey. And uh, I've been a Christian for, for, for most of my adult life. But it's, it's not been an easy faith in the sense that these things came simply. Um, I'm somebody who's just by temperament and disposition uh, searches a lot, probes a lot, presses on, on, on wrestles with questions a, a lot. Having said all of that, what was the role of faith in, in, in my political life? I'd say several fold. In terms of how one does one's job, there I would say just integrity. Does, does one conduct oneself in a way that, that has integrity and sort of the classic virtues, I guess? Uh, how does faith inform politics in particular? I've always been wary of those who have 
used uh, the Bible or the Christian faith to, in my mind, simplistically connect policy dots. So I felt like there is a Christian ethic, which I try and lay out in, in, in the book that I wrote, The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Afraid Republic After Trump. But the main purpose of politics and what I think Christianity argues for in, in within the realm of politics is justice, the moral good, the common good, uh, that, that system of politics that most advances uh, human flourishing and protects human dignity. And then it's really, I would say, up to us prudentially and, and hopefully wisely to try and figure out what that means. So I think that there is a kind of ethic um, that you can draw on from, from Christianity. But how that works its way out when it comes to health care or immigration policy or education policy, or all, that gets complicated. And I think honorable and intelligent people come down on different uh, different sides of, of the issue. I'll say one other thing, and I'm happy to, to get into this into more detail. One of the things that has struck me in, in my life in politics, having observed Christians, having engaged in it, and being aware of myself, you know, my own heart and mind as well, that it's very, very easy, I think, to subordinate faith to politics unintentionally, to warp it, to disfigure it, to try and make it fit what our political or partisan dispositions are. And so I would say of all of the groups that I've encountered in politics over the years, uh, Christians are at least as easily seduced by power as any other group I've come across. And I think when that happens, it can be tremendously discrediting to the Christian faith. That's one of the uh, reasons that I find the Trump uh, years to be so uh, disconcerting. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I think we're going to probably end up unpacking all, all of that. I'll just say about the the word unintentionally, let's just use that as a kind of, let's say that at the beginning, that all the stuff we're going to talk about is not necessarily uh, sort of overt maliciousness or um, right. sort of a, a chosen willful ignorance or something like that, but the people get caught up in this stuff. I think that's fair. And, and I do, I want to ask one follow-up on that. Do you think that Christians are as likely, if not more likely, to get... Uh, tripped up by power, by the the political process, as other religious groups, because like we are more the majority. Like we we're not used to making the hard decisions that our faith requires of us in the public sphere or in our jobs or whatever. Because I mean, especially in your early years, you know, eighties and nineties in America is still pretty normal. Every single president is at least Christian, mostly white Protestant. Right. You know, and, and so it's like, well, if you're Baha'i or something, if you're a Muslim in Congress or whatever, I mean, you're going to you're going to have a different experience. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I should should clarify when I say that Christians are as susceptible to being seduced by power as any other group. I, I didn't mean just religious group. I mean, any group, period. OK, yeah. La- labor groups, you know, uh, yeah. education groups or anything just as a general matter. I, I think that Christians are are just e- easily pulled uh, pulled into into this stuff. Chuck Colson, who was um, very well known within Christian circles yeah. because of his conversion back in the seventies after he did prison time, really during when he was about to go to prison yeah, for, for Watergate, for Watergate. Yeah. and he and he wrote a uh, a book, Born Again. But prior to that Christian conversion, he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was a, he was a pretty tough customer. 
But after his conversion, after he had started his his uh, various ministries, he wrote, gosh, I think this was in Newsweek, um, and I believe it was in the early 1980s. Um, but the upshot of what he wrote is that, that there was no group that was as easily to win over as Christians. That basically, if he could get them to the White House and get them a picture with the president, then that was uh, it. You know, uh, David Brooks, who I mentioned, is, is a good friend of mine. And uh, he gave a wonderful speech a few years ago um, to the gathering, which is a, a group in Texas for Christians. Uh, and one of the things he said in that in that speech, which he ended up weaving into his most recent book, The Second Mountain, is that in his experience, having observed Christians, there's a moral superiority complex and an intellectual inferiority complex. And I think that that, as a general matter, it's much too sweeping, obviously, and there are, there are many, many exceptions to it. But as a general matter, I think that that's, that's right. And I have noticed that for Christians, for all of the, the talk, and again, I think it's genuine uh, when, when, they, when they do speak about this, about our kingdom is not of this world, the, the, Jesus saying the world hated me, the world will hate you, the notion of the persecution that we're expected to find in the world because of our faith, that you know this is not our home, that we're citizens of another kingdom. For all of that talk, there is a sense that, that I've seen with a lot of Christians, particularly ones who are involved in politics, particularly national politics, that it's almost like a kid with their face pressed against the, the window of a candy store or a toy store. They're just longing to get in. They're longing for the recognition of, uh, of the world. They want to be taken seriously by it, intellectually and, uh, and otherwise. And I just think that that, that uh, creates some, some traps that, uh, that we have to be aware of. Well, <laughs> so this is interesting because the reason I wanted to talk with you so so badly is that your conversation with John Ward on his show was was about this really co- sort of reckoning, uh, or one of the things you guys talked about, I should say, that I wanted to follow up on, was this kind of reckoning with how effective is faith in light of Trump and evangelicals and all that stuff. But the way you're describing it now, I mean, almost sounds like you should have saw it coming entirely or predicted it because... You know, if if I hadn't had that backdrop, I would think you were giving me an explanation for why the Trump evangelical thing happened. Um, and, you know, maybe that's because w- what we have to do when we're making sense of things is to kind of, you know, f- f- uh, sort of rethink through the way we describe stuff to make sense of current phenomena. But w- the reason I asked about getting kind of a baseline, I, I want to know how you thought about it before that, such that there was some sort of a surprise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I do. And it's, it's a fair question. It actually was not a shock to me. Um, Mike Gerson and I wrote a book in 2010 um, called City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. Let's keep this confined for now uh, to evangelical Christianity, which is obviously different than, than Catholicism and other faiths. But for the purposes of our discussion, at least at this point, for evangelical Christianity, there was, as you probably know, a, a, a disengagement of really prior to the 70s. And there were several issues that catalyzed Christian involvement. Most people point to Roe v. Wade and abortion, and that was one, but that wasn't the only one. It was also having to do with some regulations that were being pushed by the Carter administration as they related to Christian schools. It was a very big topic at the uh, at the time, and there was a general concern of, of, of moral decline. Take Jerry Falwell Sr. as an example. He uh, was a, a traditional kind of Anabaptist view, 
Christians should not get involved in politics. And so he sat out the civil rights movement because he thought Christians shouldn't get involved in politics because it would stain them and be and and uh, and hurt their witness. What happened? Late 70s, he founds this group, The Moral Majority. He, Pat Robertson, and a number of others get very involved in politics and in ways that I think was, was harmful. And, and Mike and I document the ways in which that was harmful. What Mike and I thought was going to happen was that a younger generation um, was going to replace that earlier generation and find a better way to engage in politics culturally and socially. But uh, but we were premature. Um, I still think that that will happen because I think there's a huge, huge break. And I think the Trump era is making that evident with younger evangelicals. But there is a group of people still in power. And you're familiar with the names. Robert Jeffress, Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr., Eric Metaxas, James Dobson, uh, Tony Birkins, Ralph Reed. <laughs> These people who uh, have a lot of power, represent a lot of people, and they're the face of white evangelical Christianity in the political realm. So this was not a shock to me, uh, but I'm still deeply discouraged because the degree to which I think that the Trump era has discredited the Christian uh, witness and and the, the sheer uh, rank hypocrisy that we're seeing is pretty pretty amazing, and the degree to which they're what I would say is a partisan vehemence uh, on behalf of uh, of Donald Trump is, is striking. I've never begrudged conservative Christians who said that they voted for uh, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. That wasn't my choice. I didn't vote for either one. But I understood their argument, which was, look, we're conservatives and we believe that Trump's policy agenda will do more to advance the issues that we care about, do more for the good of the country than hers will by a long shot. And if we have to accept the fact that he's a person uh, who's going to transgress moral and ethical lines, we're willing to accept that reluctantly. And uh, we, we wish that w- weren't the trade-off, but it is. But that's the decision we made. I get that argument. Um, what I think is shameful uh, about a lot of white evangelical Christians, again, not, not all of them. It's a very large movement, and there are people on the continuum in all sorts of places. But for some large number of white evangelicals, it's that they have gone not only sotto voce when it comes to Trump's uh, moral and ethical transgressions, not simply that they're quiet, but that they are his sword and his shield, they're his most enthusiastic defenders, people who will not call him out from what I can tell, for virtually anything. You know, when Donald Trump said during the 2016 campaign that he could go down Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot somebody and his supporters would stay with him, that may have been the truest statement that he made during during the, uh, the campaign. And that phenomenon, the fact that they, that so many white evangelical Christians refuse to speak truth to power, to refuse to say publicly what they many of them must know privately, or the people have become so blinded that even privately they can't admit these things about Trump. That That is discouraging. And again, I think the rest of the world sees this and they say, oh, I get it. This is just a power game. Morality wasn't uh, an end. It was a means to an end. It was a club. And if it was a club we could pick up to beat a liberal Democrat like Bill Clinton upside the head with, fantastic. So in that case, let's make the argument of the importance, the centrality of morality in political leaders and presidents. But if it turns out that there's a guy like Donald Trump who's president 
for goodness sakes, let's put that moral club uh, down. We can't use it because what do you want us to do? Do you want us to hurt him and hurt his cause? If we speak out against him, we'll weaken him. And if we weaken him, we weaken his cause. And if we weaken his cause, we weaken America. And if we weaken America, we weaken Christianity. So that's the, the, those are the links in the moral chain. The end point of that is that Donald Trump you know, is a downbound train, and he's pulling a lot of people down with him. Yeah, um, a lot to respond to there. You know, it's interesting that Jerry Falwell Sr. declined to join the civil rights movement to not be political. And then the founding issue of the moral majority was Bob Jones University's policy that black and white students could not date. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, okay, now I'll get involved. To me, that kind of says what I need to know about his priorities. I, I want to agree with you, and I am on record all the time saying this, that voting for Trump is not the issue for evangelicals. I mean, I get it. That's a big moment. It's like a galvanizing statistic that a lot of people heard. And in fact, I, I've, I've had a number of people tell me that their faith deconstruction process, that was the inciting incident, was that statistic going, oh my gosh, what have I been involved in my whole right. life? But the much more concerning thing is the continued support than it is the vote. Right. And, and basically, evangelicals will prove that they were either lying or self-deceived when they said, we could never vote for Hillary because they're all going to vote for him again. Maybe even bigger numbers. Almost definitely a bigger percentage because so many people are fleeing evangelicalism. So a, a right. larger piece of a smaller pie, at least young people. I mean, I think you're right. Uh, whatever you thought was going to happen earlier in 2010 when you guys wrote that book, it's just going to happen later. And, and there's data, right? I mean, Robert Jones from Public Religion Research Institute, you know, they've like the already before Trump, the market share of the younger population compared to the oldest, you know, right. Gen Z to elders or whatever is like it's down to one third are evangelicals. Yeah. And, and with Trump, I mean, do you understand that that a young person who goes, oh, obviously this is bullshit. So I don't need to yeah. consider I don't need to consider Christianity anymore. I'll just go live my life and until something completely new takes its place, maybe? Am, am I being yeah. hyperbolic? No, I understand that. I understand that reaction. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why I've been as publicly critical of the white evangelicals as, of I, as I have, because of exactly that phenomenon. I had... I was actually in Washington State uh, several weeks ago, and I had breakfast with a, a pastor uh, at a church in, in Richland. Uh, his name is Carl Kopic. And uh, during the course of our breakfast, uh, when we were talking um, about, about this subject, he said, I mean, with unusual passion for Carl, he said, we're losing an entire generation. This is one of the worst things that the church has you know, has done. And what I would say to those younger people who who reject Christianity because of how evangelical Christians are are, are responding, apart from saying that I, I understand that reaction, is uh, that ultimately Christianity has to be judged on Christ, not on 21st century white evangelicals in America. You know, the resurrection happened or it didn't happen, Christ was a historical figure or not, he was the son of man or he wasn't. And however white evangelicals conduct themselves in politics, those facts, whatever they are, don't don't change. So as, you know, a lot of smart people have said better than I, but ultimately the case for or against Christianity really pivots on, on who Jesus was, not on who white evangelicals sure, yeah. or Trump supporters are. Now, having said that, 
It's a big deal because most people that I've come across in my life, and I'm suspecting probably for you, their faith journey is largely personal. It's very rarely primarily and almost never strictly intellectual. And people associate faith like they associate all sorts of things, you know, political affiliations and other other parts of their life with the people they see and the experiences that they have and how honorable the, the, the folks that are representing various institutions are. And so if you've got a group of people who are acting in ways that when you look up at it and you say, these people don't have integrity, that they're, they're either unbelievably deluded or they're cynical – uh, or they're they're dishonest, whatever it is, you're going to be really resistant to to uh, attaching yourself to uh, to to a group like that. I've got to tell you, Daniel, the number of um, pastors that I've heard from, the number of people involved currently in parachurch organizations or formerly involved in parachurch organizations, reporters that I know who have interviewed uh, younger Christians. It's painful and notable uh, to hear from those people how much damage uh, is being done to Christianity, particularly but not exclusively to young young people. I just got a note within the last couple of weeks from a close friend of mine who's a pastor at a church, large church in Bellevue, uh, who who was who was speaking to that phenomenon, and I've heard from from many others. So there's a real cost to this, and I do wonder if you went to these people that that we mentioned, uh, you know, Franklin Graham, Metaxas, Jeffress, Falwell Jr., and, and, and the others. And if they were able to uh, accept the damage that's being done, what it would do to them, I don't think for most of them uh, that they that it can penetrate the shield, the, the force field around them. I think that they would simply reject the claim, reject the premise, because they can't go where the premise would have eventually bring them. So the easiest thing to do in those cases is simply say it's not true or to, or to say, well, that's the fault of the younger generation that they're reacting that way. How could they be so blind? But what, however they process it, um, ultimately they're they're accountable, f- like all of us are, for for how we conduct ourselves uh, in uh, in our Christian journey and, and in our public lives as well as our private lives. Yeah. So that sort of gets to my next question. I mean, look, uh, of course it's true in in some sense that whatever whoever Jesus was is pretty unrelated to uh, what a handful of prominent people or even a bunch of voters. You know, average Americans do, but there is a kind of a proof in the pudding argument, and and I have not left the faith. I mean, I'm still hosting a theology podcast uh, whose primary goal is basically to give people an understanding of the breadth of Christianity, such that they can stay in the faith. I mean, that's right. I, I think a lot of this show is damage control for what's going on, uh, and and I come from an evangelical uh, environment, and and. A good chunk of my listeners do as well. So there's a direct relationship to the work that I'm doing and fallout from really evangelicals and Trump in the more recent history. But at the same time, as as I have remained a committed Christian, I have had to uh, tweak some expectations. I've had to change the way I think about the efficacy of faith. I've, I've really had – it's forced me to rethink some things. And I I'm, and what I'd kind of like to get into, you mentioned this with uh, with John Ward, is the Jonathan Haidt stuff, you know, the mm-hmm. um, the Daniel Kahneman stuff, the rider and the elephant, right? The 
we think that it's the rider. We think that it's our conscious and deliberative selves that really do most of the work, but actually it's our unconscious and sort of leaning and intuitive and really just like desiring and tribal selves that do most of the work. And one thing I can't help but conclude uh, when I see a stat like 28% of white evangelicals say the United States has a responsibility to accept refugees. Okay. Now, refugees and the foreigner, like this is central to Christianity. Now, you could make some arguments and occasionally there might be some person who's really thought about the policy who goes, well, technically I don't think, you know, maybe 2% of people might have done that work. But for the remaining 98%, by default, they should say as Christians, yeah, we have some responsibility for refugees. So if 28% of them say no, I have to conclude that they have not thought about this at all or that or that their political social identity or their allegiance to a particular political leader is logically primary. It is identity primary to one of the most central teachings of the Bible to care for the for the foreigner, the poor, the orphan, the widow. And so I, that's that's going to shift a little bit how I understand my faith. If OK, it's not that effective in in at least in people answering public policy questions like whatever, you know, put all your caveats on it. But 28% is a low number. I just, I'd like to hear you say some more about that. You, you kind of touched on it with, with John. Yeah, I think that that's very elegantly put. Um, Even and, though I threw an F-bomb you know, you, in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that was less elegant, but, but it made the point. Um, yeah. And look, we read many of the same people. Uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt is is uh, a person who was author of The Righteous Mind, who I've learned a tremendous amount from and has become a friend. And he's, he's really a, a wonderful human being. And I think a lot of that critique is 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 right. I'll, on that statistic that you mentioned about the refugees, I mean, I found that to be a, uh, a really – uh, moral indicting uh, figure for exactly the reason that you said these we're not talking here about uh, you know uh, e- illegal immigrants coming across the southern border we're talking about Syrian refugees primarily whose lives have been absolutely shattered and one of the things about America over the years and America has a complicated history and a lot has gone wrong and a lot has is done right but one of the things that it's been for the most part by and large, is a refuge, a safe harbor for people who have who have suffered, and then obviously there's there's a practical, prudential question about how many people can you take in. But the idea that you would virtually shut down the number of Syrian refugees that can come to this country, and that Christians above all would be the people arguing for that, I uh, I just can't get from here to there. And while I still stand with the point I made earlier, which is one has to be very, very careful about taking a Christian ethic and connecting the dots on policies because it can get really complicated. That issue of taking in refugees gets pretty close to the area where I would say in the spectrum where you can begin to connect some dots. For exactly the reason you said, what the Bible says about this topic, caring for the sojourner, uh, the, the, the alien, uh, the dispossessed, the weak, the poor, uh, and uh, w- what we should do in light of that as people of faith is so obvious. And I think that what you said is correct, that f- identity is primary for a lot of these people. If Donald Trump had gone the other way 
uh, or if it were not Donald Trump, but it was Ronald Reagan in a different era, and he had made a completely different argument, they would have they would have gone with him too. You saw, yep. by the way, the same same phenomenon in in a statistic which I quote in in the book, which is the number of Christians years ago who said that morality should be central uh, in political leadership. Yep. Uh, that was off the charts high for white evangelical Christians pre-Trump, and now it's about thirty percent. No group has shifted its its views yep. more dramatically than 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 there. So, what does that tell us? It tells us that for an awful lot of people, the Christian faith, what's what they're being led by, is not some kind of disinterested analysis of what Scripture says, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, it means that it's being colored through the lens of, of partisanship, of political affiliation, of, of tribalism. And that's what I meant earlier when I was talking about faith being subordinate to, to, to politics, to political tribalism, and to, and to partisanship. And I think Jonathan Haidt is correct. A lot of this is, is sort of pre-rational, sub-rational, trans-rational, but we, we come to our views, all of us, me included, we come to our views for all sorts of complicated reasons, predilections, temperament, life experience, family of origin, the people that we're around, our friendships, our affiliations, the organizations that we're a part of. A lot of those things go in and shape our views, and, and we develop almost instantaneous reactions um, to things. And then we try and, and do the, you know, the backfill and try and explain. And for Christians, then it becomes biblical proof texting. The other exactly. thing that happens is... It's just tremendously powerful to be part of a tribe and to get encouragement and support and succor, have these relationships uh, in, in these, these kind of associations and affiliations and, and groups. And it's hard to stand up against people in your own tribe and to say, look, this is where I've been for, for a long time, but I, but I can't stay with you. And then you get the criticism, you get the heat, you get the accusations of being a traitor or accusations of being weak or whatever they are. And it's hard for people just because we're social beings to, to do that. And then there's this issue of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, which is we know from, from neuroscience that there's a kind of rush, a dopamine hit that we get when we hear our own pre-existing views confirmed. Yep. And the flip side of that is that the brain puts up kind of walls when there are uh, facts or, or views that that challenge us, that it can be almost physically painful. And so I agree with that. And I must say, if you would have told me at the beginning of my Christian pilgrimage, by the time I, I, you know, I got to where I am now at this stage of my life, I frankly would have thought that there would be more transformed lives among Christians than I've, than I've seen. That doesn't mean that I haven't seen transformed lives. And it doesn't mean that I haven't seen certain areas that have been transformed or that people, obviously, that there are many people I know of the Christian faith who are better because of their faith. But there are some people who I think are worse because of their faith as well. That is, it took certain pre-existing tendencies and baptized them, right? So people could be have a disposition toward judgmentalism or, or a harshness, a lack of empathy. Legalism, and then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It kind of right, and then what you do is pretty that up and say, uh, "Well, this is this is actually um, you know an attitude that is uh, or a personality trait that that is that is godly." 
Yeah, people um, say, so you know, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's both kinds of power in the name of Jesus, right? Yeah. There's power to heal and transform. Yeah. There's also power to subjugate and to rule over and to yep. uh, impose one's and authority and, and baptize one's own faults, right? Right. And to hurt people. Yeah. People, you know, f- faith, you can be a healing agent as a as a person of faith or, or you can be a person who who administers deep wounds. Um, but so maybe that's kind of what's going on with uh, people of my generation who are, and, may, and maybe others who are seeing this phenomenon is, is a reckoning that faith might not be a pure good that, that lived Christianity maybe isn't always in the, the win column that it, it actually might be quite a bit more ambivalent in itself. And that what we are seeing is a particularly, silly example, a particularly obvious example to a lot of us of it being used the wrong way. And so then we have to sort of reckon with, I don't know, maybe sort of the in-group thinking that we were given, especially if we were raised Christian, that like, yeah, yeah Christians are better, obviously. Um, and so, right. oh, maybe, maybe some Christians are the worst and maybe what's needed for Christianity to be good is sort of some other scaffolding, maybe some kind of a pluralism thing or maybe, you know, something to go, hey, we're willing to keep this stuff in check because of our faith. I don't know. Just that's I'm thinking out loud. Yeah, no, it's 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 a fascinating topic. Look, I think that faith can be um, a piston for love and it can be a piston for hate. Let's let's take just a historical example, right? The, so John Locke and the American Foundings. Locke was was the most important philosopher of of, of the American Founding. He actually a person of faith, cared very deeply about faith, but was very strong in his views about uh, about keeping faith distance from politics and from governing. Why why is it? Well, in part, it was because they had emerged from two centuries of pretty brutal religious wars. And they saw the human cost of how people used faith uh, to kill one another. Uh, faith can provoke and stir up certain passions, uh, and passions can be dangerous in politics. This is what the founders, as well as Lincoln and others, were, were really worried about, uh, which was the mob. I mean, if you go back and read Lincoln's early speech, he was 28 at the time, his Young Men's Lyceum speech, I think it was in 1838, where he, he talked about the kind of mob rule. You know, that was something that worried the Madison, of course, as sort of the, the key architect of the American Constitution. Why did he set up checks and balances? Why are a republic not a democracy? Why, why do we have separation of powers? The whole idea, one of the main drivers of that was because you had to be careful about stirring up passions and, and a mob mentality. Um, and faith can do that. And, it can, and, and as I said, if, if that's what's happening and you're going down the wrong road and then you think, okay, uh, I've got now God on my side. I've convinced myself that the things that I'm pushing for is what God wants. Then you really get into this idea of children of light, children, children of darkness. Now, having said that, most of the people that I know their lives are are better because of of their their faith. They're more empathetic. They're more sympathetic. They tend to look inward more, and they try for the most part to to do the right thing. I I think my view on that, speaking as a person of the Christian faith, is what is maybe most important is really whether one's heart and affections are with Christ. I, I, I think what happens is when we lose that, when, when there's a loss of intimacy with, with Christ, 
then we're left with some of the worst parts of it. And I, the people that I, at least what I've met, I'll speak anecdotally rather than doctrinally or theologically, but the people that I've met in life, the ones whose walk is most intimate with, with Christ, they're the people whose lives are most transformed. They're the ones who are healing agents, who tend to be most merciful, show tenderness, care for, 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 the, for the weak and the lost. Um, they're the person, the people who are aware of their own failures and their own blind spots. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis said somewhere once that, you know, at some point Christians have to stop defending Jesus long enough to actually rest in him. And I think big part of my book, and, and it's been one of the things that I've, I've really been stressing in the last few years in my, in my public writings and things that I've thought about is the importance of finding people in your life who uh, see things differently than you do, an epistemological modesty, which I do think is a Christian concept. I mean, I think probably the easiest way of explaining that is Paul when he writes about seeing through through a glass darkly and then yeah. and then face to face. And you know, none of us have anything like the full capacity to see truth in reality as as it really and fully is. Sure. At at best all all we have is is we we have slivers of truth that we see. And what we need is each other, including people who see the world differently than we do, to help widen the aperture of our understanding. Yeah. Um, and that we're in an age in which that aperture is closing, not not widening, where people are going more into their silos rather than out. They're staying in the bubble rather than, than getting out of it. And we now live in a, in a media world, in a social media world, where so many of those things can be uh, affirmed. And the other thing that I think we're seeing in politics and, frankly, in, in, in theology and faith, too, is the notion that those who disagree with me aren't just my opponents, but they're enemies. Um, and that somehow to hold a position different than, than the one I hold um, means that you're morally defective. And that, that's a bad place for a free country and a republic to get to. I've started working on a series of episodes about the end times theology that was very common when I was growing up, Rapture, Left Behind series, Antichrist, all of that stuff, and mental health symptoms. So anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, etc. And uh, this is going to be a little while. It's going to take me a while to kind of put these episodes together. I've, I've already done 20 or 21 interviews, and I'm working through the transcripts. But I thought it'd be cool to share one of those interviews with patrons of the show. Uh, patrons of the show spend five bucks or more to support the show financially. You get two exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is only for patrons. And so uh, there's this really crazy conversation with my friend Liz. Um, it it was rad. It is so it's pretty out there. Uh, it's just one of many super interesting conversations I've already been able to have, and I thought I would share it. So here are some clips from that conversation, and if you are interested, then you can become a patron, and you can hear this and all the other patron-only episodes from the past 12 months. You know, I can remember a few instances 
uh, as an adult when there'd be a red moon and I'd be like, I need to call my mom and see if she's still there. Not, hey, why am I still here? But let me call my mom and see if she's still here. Because the rat and I actually got some of my friends who weren't Christians to buy into that. They'd call me and be like, yo, the moon's red. You might want to call your mom and see if she's still there. Like it was so much a part of my psyche. But I was kind of laughing at it with them. Like, do you believe I was, you know, raised believing in this? But that kind of paranoia spreads. If you have any little bit of a paranoid nature, it's not a big jump, I don't think, for people to go in that direction. Is this when you did still believe that? Or is this after you stopped believing it? I don't know that I've ever stopped believing, Dan. Rationally, in my mind, I know it's it's nonsense. Uh. At least I think it's nonsense. <laughs> I want it very much to be nonsense. Because if there's any chance that it's true, what does that say about God? Like the way that this has been spun to me my whole life is that this isn't about us. This is about all the other things that happened and we're like just along for the ride. But I just think that's crazy. <laughs> like, why would God do that? I would consider the way that doctrine is presented to kids in a lot of those denominations keeps kids in a constant state of uh, fight or flight you know, more of a complex trauma type of a thing where you're hearing all these negative messages, even if that's not what's intended, because I don't want to go so far as to say these horrible people that are trying to ruin their kids' lives, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the intention. It's the result of what happens. You know, you're 49 and you you know in the rational part of your head that this is almost definitely not what the future actually holds, but you you cannot shake this understanding of God. What does that do to your mental health now? It's a little bit easier for me to control it now, but I have to invest a lot of energy into it. I have to uh, really work hard to not lose my shit <laughs> on the daily uh, because, you know, whatever is happening politically can be tied back to in some way to this. You know, so if a president is, you know, current, whoever the current president is, if they're not supporting Israel, if they're, you know, especially wrapped around Israel, Israel is a big piece of all of that, uh, you know, then uh, he might be the Antichrist or he's, you know, going to be paving the way for the Antichrist. So everything is constructed around, does it connect to the rapture or not? Does it connect to, and are we, are we doing enough in order to bring the rapture? Like, that's the other weird thing is that they, they want it to happen. Like, it's not, oh, it's too bad that this is going to happen because things played out the way it did. It's yes, let's bring this on and woe to anyone who didn't believe, you know, it's twisted. It's twisted. So if that sounds good to you, become a patron. Starts at five bucks a month. There are also scholarships available for people who are in a really tight financial period in their life and cannot afford five bucks a month. Email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Also, you get access to the Facebook group, which is really fantastic. Okay. I want to ask one kind of brash, straightforward question about mm-hmm. the people, the anecdotal people in your life who who do I- exhibit Christ. How many of them support Trump today? Uh, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Uh, I would say most uh, most do not. Uh, most do not. There are some people I know who are very dedicated Christians uh, who do. The ones I have in mind actually are somewhat qualified in in their support of him. They wouldn't deny that he's a moral wreck, but they are people who believe we're in an existential moral struggle two minutes from midnight and that if 
the left wins, the entire American enterprise comes apart, yeah. Christianity is under yeah. attack. But frankly, most of the people – well, let me put it this way. If you had asked me before Donald Trump was president to list, say, the 20 or 25 people whom I had the most respect for and in the realm of faith that I said their opinion would mean the most to me, their, their journey with Christ would be the ones that I would most seek to emulate, they would be the people I would be most inclined to listen to. If I have listed 20 or 25 of those people pre-Trump, I would say most of them, maybe the vast majority of them, would be critical of Donald Trump. Now, other people have different experiences and they sure. would give a different answer. But for, for me, that is that is the case. And I will say this as well. I, I've always tried to be alert to hearing and listening carefully and listening well uh, to people in my life who have standing in my life who think I may be missing something. And if most of those people uh, that I have in mind had come to me and said, Pete, you are really missing the boat here. Right. You're you're morally wrong. You're engaging in... I mean, I've had friends who have said that they, they're so grieved by my position as it relates to Trump and white evangelicals that they've told me they think I'm sinning, that, that, that I'm hurting the cause of Christ uh, and the witness of Christ. And I, I just tell them I don't get angry at them. I, I understand their perspective. I just say we have such a fundamentally different view because in some ways... The way you described your podcast is probably to some extent how I think about my work these days, which is a kind of reclamation project. I, I think it is so important to have some voices in the, the world of – I don't really refer to myself as an evangelical anymore, but, but I've been associated with the evangelical world – have people in that world show that this is not all lockstep Trump supporters – and that there are some people that are willing to call out their own community, their own tribe, because they feel like that they're, they, they aren't representing the, the Christian witness in the, um, in the right way. But I do have close friends who are genuinely grieved at, at, my, uh, at my position, and it hasn't broken our relationship by any means. We've stayed in touch. We've, we've had long, long conversations, but, but we just see the world in a different way. How bad— do you think this is going to get for the American church and what might come from the ashes, assuming it's that bad? How many people will not know God because of yeah. this? That, that's what I mean. That's my metric. Right. Yeah. yeah no, I, I have obviously no, nobody can know the, the exact answer. Look, I think that there is a real cost to it. I think what, what's happening is some people who are of the Christian faith, particularly younger, are it's causing them to have second thoughts about it, thinking, is this what it's really about? I think people who are not Christian, who might have, have given it a, a, a look, now take a look at what's happening and they say, well, I don't want anything to do with this. And let me just make one caveat, which I think is an important one. I, I think most of what happens within Christianity uh, is very much apart from the political realm. Most of what happens that matters happens in our individual lives. The people we know, the relationships we make, the, the communities that we're a part of. So I don't think that, that most people's decisions and faith are, are driven by, by politics, but it creates a context um, and it creates a kind of public 
witness. Uh, I think things will get worse because uh, particularly with the 2020 campaign, Trump is, is a person who, who, who is an individual of, of borderless corruptions, as best I can tell. And there's no, as I said to a friend of mine, uh, actually my editor at the New York Times, years ago, uh, there's no bottom with him. And when there's no bottom, there's no bottom. And if you're if you're sticking with him, then you're going to go down with him. And as he gets more uncontrollable and more uncontainable, what the, dis- the phenomenon that we're describing is going to get worse because the white evangelicals are going to stick with him and going to defend him. What happens beyond that? Um, and what can the church do about it? Um, I do think that you're you're going to see a younger generation that is going to replace this this current older uh, white male uh, generation, and it's going to find a different and better way of social engagement. If you talk to people like Gary Haugen, who runs a wonderful organization, International Justice Mission, and Gary is really one of the Fantastic heroes work. of the faith. Yeah. He's yep. he's a good friend of mine. He's in he's in a book club that I have. I admire. Gary, no end. And when he talks about the younger people that he's uh, dealing with, he says that the issue that comes up a lot for them is justice, that they're driven by this deep sense of advancing justice. And I think that that uh, that can happen. I, I believe as well that viruses can create their own antibodies. And sometimes in the life of an individual and in the life of a nation, certain qualities, certain virtues that one may have taken for granted, when they're stripped away from an individual or a nation, you begin to realize why you cherish them to begin with. And maybe you begin to, to, uh, to defend them and fight for them. Even as, as we're seeing a rise of hatred in politics, there may be a rise and a renaissance of decency as well. I, I see that in the country, and other people do too. People, it's a very American thing, which is in, in local communities, not just for Trump, but the alienation, the, uh, the pain, the, the op- opioid epidemic, the, the, the rising suicide rates, the sense of, of isolation that people are experiencing, the broken lives that are happening. There are people, people of Christian faith, people not of the Christian faith, who are stepping in and saying, what can we do to begin to repair some of these lives? So I think that's happening. And of course, the other thing that happens and is just so important to keep in mind is, is that the history of, of, of the church. God is in control, uh, and the church has done best when it's not had political power, um, but when it's when it's been a community of care, and Rodney Stark has written about this, and so have others. When you had the explosive growth of the early church up and th- through the third and fourth century, what was it that di- that explained that? It wasn't because they had political power. Um, it wasn't because they were a political lobby. It was because of how they cared for the weak, the widows, the orphans, the way they treated women the way they treated people uh, outside the faith. It was really the, the Good Samaritan ethic being extended to, to wider communities. And that can happen. And of course, in American Christianity is facing, I think, a crisis, as is much of the Christianity in the Western world. But if you go to the global South, Africa and other nations, there's an explosive growth in Christianity. So it may be that American Christianity is hitting a, a low point, but that doesn't mean Christianity itself. And just one other thing that I wanted to touch on, and because I think it's it bears on this conversation, both the specific question and more generally. You know, one of the things that I've sensed with a lot of Christians who are involved in politics 
is that they're being driven by uh, a sense of fear, which is often transmuted into into anger. And it's this feeling, as I was saying earlier, that we're in an existential moral moment, that everything that we, almost everything that we know and love is uh, under attack and may fall. And that's creating a lot of fear, kind of white knuckles of fear. And I've noticed over the decades a spirit that animates a lot of Christians who are involved in politics. And it basically says, we've got to win because if we don't win, God doesn't win. And it all rests on us. And if we lose this piece of legislation, if we lose the Supreme Court ruling, if we lose this presidential election, the things we know and love will be crushed. And God can't recover from that. And the the response to that, and this goes back to my really some of my earliest intuitions about the Christian faith, um, and it's a very C.S. Lewis-informed view, I, I suppose, but it's the notion that we are part of a story, and this is a story that has an author. It has a beginning and a middle uh, and an end, and we're actors in the drama, and the incarnation tells us that God is an actor in that, in that drama. That doesn't mean that at any particular act in, in the play that you don't face difficulties and fears in an individual life or in a or corporate sense. There, there can be real tragedy, real grief, real sorrow, and, and that has to be known and, and, and people have to, have to be able to walk that journey. But those acts aren't the full play and new acts come, come into play. If you think of it as a book, you know, there are new chapters. And I just have this deep conviction. It's, it's not a logical proposition. It's just a, a view of, of my faith. And I think it's true of, of what the Bible uh, tells us. I think it's part of the arc of the Christian story, which is that there is a, a purpose to history. There's an arc to history. There's meaning to it. There's an author behind it. And in the end, you know, God's will and ways will prevail. It doesn't rest on all of us. And I think that that's the thing I would caution a lot of Christians who are involved in politics to to be wary of, which is we're called to be faithful. We're not called to be successful. God can handle this. We have to do the best we can with the gifts that we have at any given moment in time. But we really don't need to fear that uh, that this whole enterprise will will come come crumbling down. One of you, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but one of the most frequent uh, injunctions and statements in the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is "Fear not, be not afraid." And I get the sense for a lot of white Christians today, there's just a lot of fear, and I think that that's leading them into a lot of dark places. We need to talk about your book. And the mm-hmm. angle that I thought would be most interesting uh, for this show, I have a lot of listeners who have taken kind of an Anabaptist turn or have been raised in that tradition. There are some influential thinkers sort of um, on some of the progressive fringes of, of Christianity, uh, meaning they're, they're a little progressive. The, the progressive fringes of more mainstream Christianity. They're not the far, far fringes. It, this is a really a popular view, and I think it, it makes sense that it's popular that, that we should not be involved in politics because look what our parents' generation has done by being involved. I mean, we talked about Falwell. He, he didn't want to be involved. And then, well, they want, these, they want to force this Christian school to make these white and black kids be able to date. Now we'll get involved. And the tearing of uh, social Christianity that it's done, uh, the, the public image of Christianity— and on the one end, we might say we might put that kind of religious right 
on the other end, we might say this kind of let's be uninvolved. And it seems like maybe you're offering something kind of in the middle. And I, I'd like to have you respond to that. If we have time before you have to go, I would like to talk about militarism and pacifism and maybe consumerism and capitalism all in the same sphere of like how your vision deals with those difficult questions. So we'll leave Trump uh, behind. Mm-hmm. Sure. Can't wait till I can say that in earnest. Um, <laughs> and and let, let's talk about the, the this positive vision that you're putting forward. So maybe you might start with like the elevator pitch of the of the vision and, and we can kind of, but however you want to go about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I guess on uh, what's the purpose of, of the core purpose of, of my book, it's really a defense of politics. Um, it's a belief that uh, politics matters uh, because justice matters. And I would say for, for people of the Christian faith that you can't be indifferent to, to justice. And that doesn't mean that that's all that politics is about. It doesn't mean that politics doesn't have its downsides. Politics is comprised of broken uh, and flawed individuals, um, just like podcast hosts and pediatricians and uh, and electricians and lawyers and doctors are. It's just the nature of the human condition. But politics is about how we live together, how we organize ourselves. it can be about great goals, and as I said earlier, and is fundamentally about setting up a system and a way of life and a governmental system, uh, and even beyond the government, because politics can be understood very broadly, that advances justice. And if you do it well, there can be there can be tremendous human good and human flourishing. And if you do it poorly, there can be a huge human cost. You see that in an obvious example between North and South Korea. If somebody says politics doesn't matter, uh, tell them to try and live uh, under the regime of Kim Jong-un um, for, uh, for a few years, as a Christian or not as a Christian, and then let them tell you whether politics matters or not. Tell me that the 1860 election didn't matter, that if Lincoln had lost and John Breckinridge or, or, or Stephen Douglas had won, that that wouldn't have, uh, have mattered. I mean, throughout history, there have been periods of great moral urgency, and politics has something to say about it. It had something to say about it during the civil rights struggle. It's had something to say about it during the pro-life debate. Um, now, politics is often very prosaic, and it, it's silly to pretend that it's always about great moral issues. It, it's not. But it is trying to construct a life and how we uh, on how we live together, and and to try and give people certain basics of progress and hope and security and protection and opportunity. And I just don't think you can you can become so cynical that you just say screw it. Doesn't matter who wins. Doesn't matter who runs it. Let's get the hell out. And what I would say to people who were who were tempted that way is don't make perfection the 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 prize for involvement. Don't insist that that if everything doesn't go right uh, or because uh, the outcome of politics is a mixed bag uh, that you're going to s- sit outside. Most of life for those people who don't know it is mixed. <laughs> it's it's very rarely that you get all you want. That life is is uh, and and that that the options that you make or the decisions you make are are uh, you know uh, obvious and 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 uh, all the good arguments are on one side and all the bad arguments are on the other. Uh, life is is a mix and we're imperfect in how in, in how we do that. It's a deeply I would say conservative view, by the way. 
conservatism, as I have understood it over the course of my life, and while I'm no longer a Republican, um, I am still a conservative. And one of the hallmarks of conservatism is that it is a negation of ideology. It is a belief, if you're of, of the view of, of, of a Madison or a Burke or an Oakeshott, that human experience matters, that uh, that a lot of life is broken, that you should have gratitude for the things that go well, that you need to adjust, that you need to reform, that you need to take into account particular facts and circumstances as you try and improve things. And I think people should do it. And I, and I will say finally on this matter that my own experience has not left me cynical about politics. Now, it's anecdotal and my journey is different than other people's. But most of the people that I've been involved with in my political life have been pretty good and decent people. And I say that about conservatives and liberals and about Democrats and Republicans. Most of the people that I've come across get involved in politics for the right reasons. They have certain views uh, about what they think might, uh, might help the most people. Of course, motivations are mixed. Mine are, yours are, everybody's are, is. Um, it's difficult to discern the motivations of, of others because it's hard enough to d- discern our own, honestly. And a lot of good things happen. I, I, mean, I would say this is particularly true on the right these days. But more broadly, there seems to be an attraction to a dark narrative for reasons I'm not exactly clear on why. I it's almost as if people don't want to recognize that there's good news. It just seems fashionable to have a tropism toward what is broken, uh, what is scandalous, uh, what is shameful. We're at a period in our national life where people seem to be amped up, agitated, um, quick to criticize, quick to be drawn into cynical view of things. And I, I just think that that's not the way life one is I don't think it's a good way to approach life in general, um, but I also don't think it's really consistent with with reality. What about militarism and, and pacifism? This is a problem for a lot of Christians. They they might agree with you. Let's say, yeah, getting involved at the local level in politics is going to, you know, how our schools run, where the funding goes, uh, do, you know, do we need better safety on these roads? Sure. No problem. But I can't support the American military global empire or or something to that effect. How do you know, like that that's just fundamentally unchristian. Uh, maybe we need to let someone else take a turn. There's no reason to think that we should stay sort of at the at the head of global power. There's an empirical question as to for how much longer will we be or are we still at the head of that spear? But how do you respond to something like that? Yeah, I'd say there are two two uh, responses I would have uh, on the narrow question of the pacifism that that, that you raised and and militarism in the sense of of, of war. Um, look, I think it's a complicated issue, and I think there there are there's a just war theory and there's a pacifist theory, and and I think that honorable people can make those arguments. You know, what I would say to people is look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer himself was a pacifist, as you probably know, and was a great theologian who died when he was, I think, 39 at the very end of uh, of the war in, in 1945. He, he was born in Germany, but then he came to New York. He, he spent some time in Europe. He was at Union Theological Seminary, and he had the option to stay uh, at Union Theological Seminary, but he decided out of a matter of conscience that he had to go back to Germany because uh, he, he had seen what had happened uh, with the church in Germany and the corruption and the German church. 
And he was part of a movement that, that built up the confessional church, which said that we as followers of Christ can't uh, be a part uh, this closely aligned with regimes in general, but particularly with, with the Nazi regime. And he went back because he felt like he had to be there to try and engage in this struggle to save the church and to keep the Christian witness from, from being torn apart by its nationalistic hold that, that uh, was happening in Germany. Again, as I said earlier, he was, he was a pacifist. But in the end, what did he do? He participated in a plot to kill Hitler. Um, that's why he was hanged. The reason that he changed his mind was he felt like um, Hitler was such an, an, a malicious and malignant uh, and malevolent force that uh, he had to set aside his own pacifist views uh, for what he thought was a greater moral good. And I don't fault him for having done that, even as I understand that there can be principles of pacifists who say that, that, uh, that you should never do that. More, more or people pro- that say, you know, Hitler and the Nazis or, you know, Pol Pot or something are, are sort of easier questions. But like, should we be messing around right. in Guatemala? And, you know, right. like no, the, and I want to get harder I, questions. I, and I want to get to them because they are harder questions. But in terms of the theology, the principle. Yeah. That the, the reason you go to the third rider Pol Pot is because it illustrates something. Of what course, does it yeah. illustrate? It illustrates that these are complicated moral questions, and it's sure. fine to be able to sit back and say, you know, the Sermon on the Mount says you should be a pacifist. And if you're in government and you face a very real situation in which maybe uh, five hundred thousand lives depends on what you do, maybe a million lives, uh, maybe the Rwandan genocide can be stopped if we get involved. Uh, and maybe all of the, the human tragedy can be prevented if we act prudentially and early. Maybe that's worth, worthwhile. So that, the, that's why you, you bring up those examples, because they're clarifying, because they, they are. And everybody, by the way, almost everybody, falls on a, somewhere on a spectrum, on a continuum. Yeah. And it depends on facts and circumstances. In terms of your, your, your larger and, I think, more challenging question, which is the American – which you refer to as the American global empire – you can't defend it. It's fundamentally unchristian, and shouldn't we let somebody else maybe lead it? I don't agree that it's fundamentally unchristian, and I don't think it's fundamentally Christian. I don't think you can say American leadership in the world is something that can be discerned as as biblical or as Christian. I think the question to me, the way I view this, and it's just the prism through which I view politics, is a pretty concrete and practical one. And this is where the debates take place, of course, which is, uh, is the human good, is the moral good more or less advanced by America having a global leadership? And that's an empirical question in part, which is – and yeah. it's a counterfactual question too. If America had, had a, a Pat Buchanan view of the world, a, a America first, let's withdraw, I, I think – critics of America's role in the world would at least have to entertain the possibility that if America had not played the role that it has since the Second World War, that a lot of countries that were worse uh, would have had a lot more power and done a lot more damage. I know it was fashionable during the Cold War and during the Reagan years for liberals and progressives to underplay the evil of the Soviet regime and to, uh, in my estimation, uh, exaggerate the sins of America. But I think it's now pretty well documented 
that in this great struggle between Soviet communism and America, that America was morally superior in just about every way. And that if the Soviet regime had gone unchecked and unchallenged, and it had been able to take over country after country, then the kind of pain and, and, and genocide uh, and prison camps um, that we saw, Stalin is responsible for, what, 45 million deaths? Mao Zedong, 70 million deaths. Uh, Pol Pot, one-fourth of the, of the population. We were talking earlier about North Korea. That stuff matters. And I think if it's a little facile for Christians to say, you know, there's American global empire. It's none of our business. It's unchristian. Let's just pull back and see what happens. Well, yeah, let's see what happens. Again, you have to entertain the possibility that maybe there is tragedy and grief and rivers of blood that happen. Now, that doesn't mean several things. First, it doesn't mean that uh, America is, uh, is without sin. It's got an awful past, particularly related to slavery and not only related to slavery. Now, that's every country in, in, in the history of the world has sins to answer for. And then you have to say, we, as best we can, to say, where is America in that, in that uh, history of nations? Um, and that's that's a legitimate issue. It doesn't mean that America should get involved in lots of wars or even in any particular wars. Um, but of course, American global leadership is not primarily militaristic. American global leadership can be setting up world financial markets. It can be involved with the Global AIDS Initiative, which was one of the great right. contributions by George W. Bush. That was global leadership. Now, does does a progressive really want to say, gosh, I wish that there were 12 million Africans who were dead now because Bush didn't do the global AIDS and the malaria initiative? Because what the hell interest is that ours? Let some other country step step up. World Bank, you know, all sorts of organizations. There's soft power, which scholars have, have written about, which is a central component of global leadership. So... Sometimes I think when people say American global leadership, people on the left, they think that we're getting involved in wars. And of course, even wars themselves are complicated, right? Which is wars against whom? For what purpose? What's the cost to your country? What's the cost to the other country? What's the cost if you don't go to wars? I mentioned the Rwandan example. If you ask Bill Clinton what his greatest regret as president was, it was that he didn't get involved early on to try and stop the Rwandan genocide. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people died in a matter of, of weeks because we didn't stop it. And he, looking back, says we could have. Why didn't he? Well, because there had been an incident earlier in which a number of Americans had gotten killed in Somalia. And we had uh, very fearful about getting involved and and. And maybe we couldn't have fully stopped the Rwandan genocide. I'm not, I'm not insisting that we could have. But those are the kind of complicated moral issues that I must say, when you're in government, you have a deeper appreciation for it than when you're out. And I've always yeah. argued that it would be and – I, and I mean this for myself too because right now I'm a, I'm a, a commentator. I write a column for the New York Times and, and for, the, uh, for the Atlantic. And I have to remind myself that when you're in government facing – complicated decisions with a lot of contingencies you can't control, forced to make decisions in a limited period of time on incomplete information, that isn't easy. And sometimes you get it wrong, but those decisions still have to be made. And it's very easy 
for me as a writer or you as a person with a podcast or being a commentator on CNN or Fox or MSNBC after the fact, when we see what worked and what didn't work, you know, to focus in on what went wrong and say, well, geez, how could they have been so stupid? And it was so obvious what they should have done. And a lot of those commentators, when they talk about how easy governing is before they go in, then they go in and then they find it's hard. I'll give you one example, Samantha Power. She wrote a very good book about genocide. Then she went in in uh, the Obama administration. She was UN ambassador. And what happened? The, there was tragedy that, that happened on their watch where she had real laments about what happened. And she found out that it's easier in some respects to write a book about stopping genocide than it is to be in government and to try and figure out what levers of power do we have. So I'm one of those who believes that American global leadership net-net since the Second World War has been a good thing. I think we've made mistakes for sure. Um, and and, uh, and there have been costs to that. But I think, and it's a counterfactual, but if America had taken the Pat Buchanan view of the world, which is let's pull off to the sidelines and let's let uh, all the other countries uh, figure it out for themselves and, and let the, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union, or today let China or Russia have their way uh, unchecked and unchallenged, I think from a Christian perspective – you you have to take a careful look at, at the human cost of that. You know, I, I'm somewhere in the middle on all these questions, but David Frum once said, you know, in 75 years or I guess, yeah, 75 years since World War II, um, no nuclear weapons have been used on any people, really. And basically no major international wars have been fought. Right. And it's it's very hard to be confident in saying, it would be better if we had not been in charge, given that record. Now, of course, right. other things happened. Those are tough stats to argue with. And I don't know. I, I, I'm fairly convinced by that sort of broad thrust of argument. The core argument that he's making, which is the world is better because of America's presence, is true. But you're quite right. I mean, we've made mistakes um, in, in all sorts of, uh, of areas. This country's pretty good, I think, as a general matter at correcting those mistakes and having some degree of accountability. Uh, often it takes time. And, you know, we've, we, we've had situations in which we've gotten involved in, in areas for good faith reasons, and they've, and they've gone south. Sometimes we've gotten involved with CIA in various regimes, you know, Iran in the, in, in the 50s, uh, some of the Latin American countries in, in uh, 70s and 60s. You had the Church Commission in the 70s that revealed things, and those are regrettable. But again, it, it, it really gets complicated. If you, you know, sat and talked to people who work in the intelligence agencies and the CIA and you understood what they, what they had to do to try and keep a brutal uh, and volatile world from uh, spinning out of control – uh, and if you have the responsibility and the obligations to protect um, Americans, it's not always easy or self-evident what, what has to be done. What, but what you do need is you need people who are voices of conscience that are always asking, is this the right thing to do? Is this morally sustainable? Is this the kind of thing if you're a person of the Christian faith? Is this something that is consistent with the, with the ethic of Jesus? 
you really can't have too much of uh, of that because the temptation to self-justification in any arena of human life is tremendous. But if you're in government, it's probably particularly potent. And a lot of times people get invested in a, in a particular policy. And once that happens, it's it's hard to, to de-invest. Um, but sometimes you have to do that. Well, uh, Pete, thank you so much for your time. Again, uh, the book we've been referencing is called The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. And um, man, I'm just grateful for the chance to chat. And thank you for continuing to be a a kind of an insurgent voice, which is so weird because uh, three years ago you would have been considered a complete establishment voice. Yes. You know, three Republican administrations and now all of a sudden you're an insurgent and thank you for, for just sticking to, to what seems to be true to you. I, I appreciate that. Well, you're, you're kind to say so. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's, uh, I'm glad that, uh, that John Ward put us, uh, connected us, put us together, and uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have been a part of it. And I will just plug him. If you're interested in uh, politics and in particular the role of institutions in politics, um, his podcast, The Long Game, is, is about as good as it gets. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well, of course, to your book, Pete. Um, thanks, man. Have a great day. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, as promised, uh, a rapid-fire listener question segment here. The first one, is the practical moral thing to do by way of behaving as Jesus behaved to be outspokenly political on issues that pertain to loving others as God loves us and treating neighbors as we want to be treated? For instance, immigration, being anti-war, healthcare as a human right, gun control, etc. End of question. So the question here is whether we ought to be outspokenly political, and the implication is that Jesus himself was outspokenly political, because is the moral thing to do by way of behaving the way Jesus behaved to be outspokenly political? That's the phrasing of the question. I'm a little skeptical, though, that there is any kind of straight correlation we can draw between Jesus's ministry in occupied Israel in AD 30 and being one of 300 million educators eligible voters in a democratic republic in 2019, it's definitely true that Jesus was outspoken, and arguably this is what got him killed, actually, in the end. And I do believe that there are plenty of political implications to Jesus' teachings and ministry, but Jesus himself was pretty emphatically not the political-slash-military messiah that many Israelites were expecting him to be. You know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's has been long used as a proof text for the more Anabaptist approach, the more politically uninvolved ethic for certain segments of Christianity. So it's not clear to me that the Christian thing to do is to be super politically vocal. Then there is the problem of how people actually change their minds about political issues. Now, one thing I will say, I agree with the asker of the question that there is a more kind of Christian stance on immigration, on war, on healthcare, on gun control, at least in terms of the way that I apply Christian ethics to my own politics. But how do people actually change their minds? Here, I will just refer to the work of Jonathan Haidt, which I talk about a lot, especially his book, The Righteous Mind. And I'm convinced by his work and that of other social psychologists 
that being vocal, especially on social media, often does more to turn people away than it does to convince them of our own viewpoint. I won't say more about that because I've talked about it a lot, um, but you could read that book of his or find his TED Talk from around that time to see what he means and, and where that argument comes from. I will summarize his line of thought by saying, if we want to actually convince people, we're going to have to be far more strategic than simply proclaiming loudly and proudly what the, quote, correct Christian political stance, unquote, is on any given topic. Which leads to my final thought on this question. The examples that the question asker gave that pertain to loving our neighbor, immigration, being anti-war, healthcare as a human right, and gun control, are all pretty thorny policy issues in my mind. They each contain a number of empirical and ethical questions that need to be answered by either scientists or ethicists or something like that. To choose uh, a few off the top of my head, which gun control measures reduce death and bodily harm the most and why? Does the U.S. being involved in, for instance, developing nations experiencing civil war increase or decrease overall human suffering and why? What level of health care ought to be a human right? Emergencies and preventative care only? How about rare types of cancer? Where do you draw the line? Now, I've shown my cards earlier in this episode's earlier in this episode as regards refugees. I think the current argument from conservative American Christians is completely hogwash. But general immigration conversations are much much harder. One really big question especially as climate change will certainly increase the number of global refugees, is just how much change societies can handle without drastic consequences. Like, I don't know, how many refugees can come in before a populist right-wing leader gets elected in response? And what are the consequences of that? You can look to Scandinavia and some other European countries uh, for the thorniness of that question. Now, I don't think this question is a problem for America as regards refugees specifically because we are such a huge country and there aren't that many refugees that come in. But how many legal immigrants before the white population gets even more politically extreme? Now, personally, as I said, I lean left on all four of those issues, but I can no longer draw any straight line between Jesus and the political policies that my party puts forward with very few exceptions, refugee policy being one of the only exceptions. Um, unfortunately, these are really complex issues and are above almost all of our pay grades. What we can do is we can vote, we can learn to listen better to each other, uh, and hopefully as we do so, voters on each side of the political spectrum will encourage their own representatives to avoid unhelpful slogans like abolish ICE, for instance, and actually dig into some problem solving. And by the way, I say abolish ICE uh, as unhelpful because you can't just get rid of an entire law enforcement agency whole cloth just because it is the tip of the spear of some really disgusting policies. ICE does a ton of work that's not simply deporting people. And to get rid of it would be to basically have open borders, which really no one who knows what they're talking about wants. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I feel like is unhelpful. Uh, there's um, a million slogans on the right. Um, you know, build that wall or lock her up or whatever. Also super unhelpful. Okay, next question. Can Christians be non-political in a biblical way or does biblical Christianity mean engagement in politics is unavoidable? 
I'm going to keep this one quick because I think that Pete did a pretty good job of sort of drawing the contours of this debate, or at least making his own argument for political engagement. I do want to say, though, that I have no idea what counts as biblical Christianity anymore. But what I take the question to mean is something more like this. If we are actually taking our cues from the New Testament and maybe some stuff from the prophets in the Old Testament, we will find something much different than the current popular strain of God and country style evangelicalism. And I 100% agree with that. But as I think is becoming clear, after making that straightforward point that what we find in the Bible is very different than what we find in America, where we go from there is actually pretty complicated. It's a matter of discernment. So I don't really know. It's something I'm discerning for myself as I go along. Next question. I've long been thinking about and wondering if it's possible to be a very progressive Christian and still conservative politically. I am fairly progressive spiritually, but maintain my middle right political views, and I have not seen this modeled in a church setting. My answer is, of course this is possible. For instance, you might be really worried about how much power to give individual politicians or to give directors of government programs, something like that. You might economically be very convinced by the power of the free market. Um, I think it's ideal to have really smart and really well-meaning people on both ends of the spectrum hashing out their ideas and their policy proposals, competing to win hearts and minds, competing to be proven right by upcoming research. Um, that That's really the, be- the way we get the best policies. I mean, Obamacare came from Romney, a, de- a Republican uh, governor in Massachusetts. So, but someone else looked at it and said, hey, that could scale to the whole country in a way these other ideas can't scale. So that's good. People have leanings. They have liberal or conservative leanings on policy questions, on how much they like to travel, on how much they think that having new and diverse things makes their community better. This is fine. No one chooses this stuff. It just is there. And it's totally okay to be on either end. Now, in terms of the church setting, you're right. This is rarely modeled uh, because in our current moment, our culture is increasingly split into two groups, and these two groups align internally on almost everything. It's the urban and coastal left versus the suburban, exurban, and rural right. It, it changes what TV we watch, who we vote for, how much we travel, what kind of restaurants we eat at, what kind of grocery stores we shop at, which news sources we trust, whether we think it's important or not to use gender-fluid pronouns, how we dress, J. Crew or Bass Pro Shops, chambray or camouflage, which cars or trucks we drive. The, the brand new F-150 with the massive chrome grill in front is totally the urban right version sorry, the rural right version of the Tesla S model on the left. I could go on and on. You could pick almost anything that is in American society, maybe other than sports, and you can find that line between the left and the right. It's it's really a big deal. And what that ends up meaning in practice is that some big chunk of our identity is totally separate from our faith and, in fact, is more central to us than our faith. And I think that this is actually one of the best explanations for how evangelicals have ended up flocking to Trump and also for why theologically progressive churches are often hashtag resist headquarters. 
Alan Jacobs has a really great short book called How to Think, which is about exactly this, and I highly, highly recommend it. I'm also going to put that in the show notes. And I'm convinced by him and others that in 2019, the people that we should most be looking to, to learn from and emulate, are the people who in some significant way do not fit into one of those two camps. I will say one thing, though, to my more liberal listeners. I do understand communities and nonprofits whose primary purpose is to advocate for the less fortunate or to create a safe space for people who have been traumatized in some way. So I would exempt some churches and other organizations who fit that criteria from this broader critique. We need those safe spaces at certain points in our lives. And indeed, I I hope that this podcast is like a digital safe space of its own in whatever way it can be. But for most of us, myself included, we have been caught up in what journalist Bill Bishop has called the big sort. We have been sorted into urban and left versus rural and right. And if this bothers you, then I think you're on the right track. Next question. Do you think the active nonviolent ethic for individuals applies to government entities? What carries over and what is different? This is a great question, and I honestly have no idea uh, where to draw that line. I really don't know. Um, Some of what Pete said today uh, and that argument from David Frum I mentioned, 75 years without any nukes going off on people and no serious international wars, I mean, that shit is hard to argue with. I don't know how much confidence I have in a governmental nonviolent ethic that it could ever produce that kind of stability, but maybe. And maybe my faith is too small, frankly. On a non-governmental level, I am completely committed to nonviolence, though. I'm still in the Gandhi and MLK camp, although I know plenty of justice thinkers disagree, and and maybe it's kind of fashionable to disagree with that right now. Um, But the way that I read the Gospels and the way I think about what it means to follow Christ, I think that's probably my only option. I wish I had a better answer. Uh, That's all I've got. Next question. In reaction to most evangelicals adopting conservative politics, many people deconstructing their faith switch teams and become just as vocal proponents of progressive politics. Do you see that? And is that something worth challenging? Excellent question. And as should be clear from earlier answers here, yes, I absolutely see this and I absolutely do think it's a problem. And actually, I just had a really frustrating experience of this last week. So there was this news item about the Trump administration restricting refugees, um, basically down to nothing or 10 to 15,000, which is almost nothing compared to what we've done in the past. And I, I made this Facebook post, which is sort of rare, and I really was trying to do this aisle crossing thing to say, hey, evangelicals, I know that you weren't voting for this. I know you were voting for not Hillary. You were voting for Supreme Court justice appointments. And look, I'm pretty happy with the Supreme Court justice appointments. So we can share that. But please call your senator, call your Congress people or email them that you don't support this refugee policy because of this, 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 and this. I gave some biblical arguments. I gave some facts about how refugees are vetted, all that stuff. I got almost no comments about the refugee policy. And I got a ton of comments, which basically called me out on my lack of ideological purity as regards the Supreme Court. And after about six hours of that, I just deleted it. I just got fed up. 
because the point was not to argue the Supreme Court. Anyone reading the post could tell clearly the point was to try and get evangelicals to reconsider the refugee policy specifically. And the Supreme Court thing was an olive branch. And I think that like, look, one person commented that uh, she was a sex abuse survivor. And so the Brett Kavanaugh appointment, uh, it was really harmful and, and hurtful to her. And to her, I wrote back, I agree. I thought he was unqualified for the office. Um, what I meant was more just sort of his judicial policies and, and whatnot. I'm a bit more conservative when it comes to Supreme Court. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Mostly it's from talking to a handful of lawyer friends I know who are really smart and who I agree with on a bunch of other issues. And anyway, who cares? I got one opinion. I'm one of 300 million voters and I'm trying to do an olive branch here. And I think that we we need to be better at differentiating between obviously good things and more complicated policy-related disagreements, which are not so obviously good or bad. You know, there aren't very many obviously good policies, as Pete and I agreed on in the conversation today. Letting in at least a standard level of refugees is almost definitely one of those obviously good policies, but there aren't very many other ones. Um, now that said, there's something really beautiful about going to an anti-white supremacy rally and seeing signs from the local Methodist, Lutheran, Church of Christ, Episcopal churches dotting the landscape. That is the gospel in action. That is beautiful. I would love to see more of that. But on the other hand, I recently heard a liberal theologian on a podcast say Christianity equals white supremacy with some caveats and some explanations. Um, I don't know about that. That seems to me like an oversimplification of something that is super complicated. Now, it might signal to the type of people that that theologian is working with that it's a safe space for them. So I get that. It's advocacy. But I think it's also kind of lazy messaging, and I worry about that kind of thing. But the Unite the Right rally, that is white supremacy. That's so obviously bad. And to join a counter-protest seems to me awesome and uncomplicated. Now, why don't conservative churches join those protests? Why weren't there a bunch of Bible churches at, uh, protesting against the Unite the Right rally? I think the previous question gets at that because they are a part of the other massive group in America, the rural and suburban right. And in that group, just like in the 60s and 70s with Vietnam, protesting is simply not on the menu. It's like culturally taboo. One last note on this question. There is now such a strong identification in America between conservative Christianity and conservative politics that if you change your theology, nine times out of 10, you will change some decent chunk of your politics. What's interesting to me is whether or not that change has been thought through or if you're simply leaving one tribe to join another tribe. Now, interestingly, my own overall movement has been toward the center politically, while my theology has only gotten more liberal. And this has mostly been through understanding psychology better, individual, moral, and social psychology, and a greater desire I've had to actually change people's minds, and a shrinking desire to signal the correct virtues to my own in-group, which, by the way, everybody does that, not just liberals, everybody virtue signals. But my trajectory might be different than others because I actually started 
pretty far politically left. Let's say in college when I could first vote, I was a Ralph Nader supporter before Bernie Sanders ever ran for president. I was reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States at 18. I was listening to punk rock, you know, yada, yada, yada. But if your theological deconstruction begins while you are still an evangelical Republican, then you're probably going to have a different political trajectory than I had. All of these trajectories, I think, are totally fine. It is fine if you find conservative political arguments uh, more convincing than liberal ones. That is fine. That has very little to do with your faith. And we need you at the table as well. Uh, So, yeah. Okay. Last question. How do we gently talk to Christians who justify political positions by saying the Bible doesn't apply here? Like, for instance, they might admit that the church should help immigrants, but then say the government shouldn't. So everything Christ teaches, we can separate politically from the immigrant crisis. In parentheses, but probably not from the abortion debate, if you ask them, end parentheses. That is a really interesting question. So basically, people will say, yeah, that applies to churches or maybe individuals, but it doesn't apply to the government, so we're off the hook. Well... I think the first thing that you do if someone says that to you is you admit that policy questions are really complicated. You say, yeah, you know, it's hard to know how many to let in, what the levels are. I don't believe in open borders, something like that. Then if you think that they are actually listening and interested in the conversation, uh, and by the way, you should check yourself as to whether you are actually listening and willing to have a conversation and understand where they're coming from. But if that seems possible... Then I think the question about abortion is actually a really smart one. Why does the government's power apply to abortion, but not to helping immigrants? Why not just say abortion should be legal, but churches should be places where expectant mothers are helped and adoptions are arranged? Most people, right and left, do not actually have coherent values from which flow all their political positions. This is another thing I found really helpful in Jonathan Haidt's work is recognizing that the way we talk about our opinions, our political opinions especially, is very different from the way we actually form them. So what most of us have are not positions borne out logically by our principles, but we have tribal memberships, left and right, Christian, atheist, whatever. So adjust your expectations for these conversations accordingly to the fact that most people haven't really thought through them. But as I mentioned in a listener question a few weeks ago, sometimes we can still have helpful conversations. Um, And I really think that that question is a better and more full answer than I can give here. It was after the main interview on the episode called What Counts as Prayer? And it was about like what mental tricks I use for empathizing uh, with conservative loved ones and whatnot. Um, But I got way deeper and most of that answer would apply here. It's about checking your expectations. Um, If you're having a conversation, you know, asking questions about what they might know. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember all of it. So head to the end of what counts as prayer for a better answer here. Thank you guys for all those questions. They were really good. Um, that's the end of the listener questions. Thank you to Scott Sanjemi for editing today's conversation with Pete in the show notes. I have a link to Pete's book. I have a link to that podcast episode of him on the long game and to Alan Jacobs book, how to think 
Remember, you can become a patron, starts at five bucks a month or even less. Email me if you're in some financial straits. You have permission podcast at gmail.com to become a patron, which includes two exclusive episodes per month, Facebook group membership and more. Head to patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Thank you guys so much. And I believe we'll see you next week. <laughs>